0: Dr. Hanan Ashwari is the founder of the Palestinian Initiative for the Promotion of Global Dialogue and Democracy, known more simply as, as MIFTA. Established in 1998, MIFTA is committed, quote, to promoting democracy and human rights and to ending Israeli occupation on humanitarian rather than historical or ideological grounds. Dr. Ashwari is a member of the Executive Committee of the Palestine Liberation Organization and the first woman ever elected to a seat in Palestine's highest executive body. Born in Nablus and raised in Ramola, Dr. Ashwari holds a BA and MA degree from the American University in Beirut and a PhD in English and comparative literature from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. For over 20 years, she served on the faculty of Berzait University, where she was Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Founder and Chairperson of the Department of English. After leaving Berzait, she served as the official spokesperson for the Palestinian Authority's delegation to the Middle East Peace Process from 1991 to 1993, and as the Minister of Higher Education and Research in the Palestinian Authority until 1998. Described as one of the most influential women in the Arab world, she has been recognized internationally for her advocacy of Palestinian self-determination, her contribution to the peace process, and her work on behalf of human rights. At our forum today, she will offer a Palestinian perspective on the possibilities for and obstacles to achieving peace in the Middle East. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome to the Westminster Hall Forum, Dr Hanan Ashwari.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you Reverend Tim Hart Anderson, but may I call you Tim? You may. Okay, we're all friends by now. Thank you Tim for this uh, very nice and and generous introduction, but if you get to say Ashrawi, then you get to win a prize. I don't think, my real name is Ashrawi. (laughs) That's my husband, Hanan Ashrawi. It's not Ashwari, but it's A-S-H-R-A-W-I. And I would like to thank also um, uh, Tim Sparks for this uh, inspirational music. It was wonderful to hear him. But primarily, I would like to thank Susan McKenna for her uh, really persistent and professional efforts at trying to get me here. And you succeeded, and I'm very happy to be here. Actually, every time I come to this part of the world, particularly to the Twin Cities area, I'm always somehow um, refreshed. I feel there's a sense of openness and uh, it's invigorating to see how people really want to hear and want to engage and want to start uh, a real dialogue. So thank you for inviting me to be here. And as usual, whenever I'm in such a setting, I promise you to resist my uh, homiletic tendencies. I, I will not give you, I will not give you a, a sermon, but I will try to engage with you in in a discussion of uh, an issue that is of vital significance, not just to me personally, uh, and not just to the Palestinians and Israelis and the region, but also to the world as a whole. And you'll see why I think the Palestinian question is uh, crucial for what I call a a test of uh, global uh, rule of law, as well as a test of seriousness, seriousness of intent and commitment to peace and justice in the world. And uh, this is really a special opportunity to present a Palestinian perspective. The Palestinian narrative has quite often been excluded or denied or distorted and quite often confiscated. So it doesn't take courage just to speak out. I think it takes courage to listen and to provide an opportunity for listening and engaging and also to increase awareness Because once you have the knowledge and increased awareness, then you have the responsibility to act and to do something about it. And I see many faces, many people here today who have uh, done something about this, who have engaged, who have the uh, requisite knowledge and who have translated this knowledge into action. And I'm very grateful to all of you. Now people are talking about... uh, proximity talks, about the Mitchell visits, about you know shuttle diplomacy again. Most people uh, ask about the details of what's happening here and now, but uh, as an academic and as somebody who's been involved in this all my life, I would say we do need to contextualize that the, the uh, Mitchell visits and the American uh, engagement and efforts are not new, and the Palestinian question did not emerge just recently or since 67, that this is something that has been ongoing for a long time. It is, of course, a multidimensional question. It's historical, it is territorial, it is legal, it's political, it's moral and ethical, it is human, and it's existential. It's so multidimensional that when you attempt to tackle it, to solve it, you have to deal with all these issues simultaneously. But one thing I can tell you, it is not and must not be religious or absolutist. This is not a conflict of religions. It is not a conflict between Judaism and Islam or Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Although an interreligious dialogue might be useful, but I certainly do not think that you should bring God into the conflict, because, or you can claim divine rights or absolute rights. I think this is a man-made conflict, certainly not a woman-made conflict. (Laughter) And I do believe that it can be resolved using political, legal, human uh, means rather than bringing God into the picture and therefore claiming that you can totally negate the other because you have uh, a monopoly on the truth and on rights. Uh, And again, um, it is not a demographic issue because I do not look uh, at the Palestinians as a demographic threat to Israel and therefore I do not think that the demographic threat should be the basis of any solution, because I see that not just as racist, but I see that as sexist. It's not a race between Israeli and Palestinian women as to who can have more children. I think this is a situation of blatant injustice, and therefore to be resolved it has to be resolved, by removing the injustice, and we do have a right to freedom, to liberty, to our day in the sunshine, to our... uh, Exercise to exercising our self-determination, not because we're a demogra- uh, demographic threat, but because we're a people like other peoples with basic rights. And uh, therefore, I mean, I don't mean to tell you it's so complex that it's intractable. No, I think it is complex, but it can be resolved. If you have the political will, the commitment, the foresight, the energy, the courage to tackle all these issues, it can be resolved. And I do not believe any conflict on earth is intractable or beyond solution. But again, I I try to caution against the overuse of the term conflict, because I don't think it's quite a typical uh, term in in terms of the discourse of the Palestinian situation. It's not quite applicable for many reasons. First, historical injustice did befall the Palestinian people in 1947-48 with the creation of the State of Israel, certainly. We were the people of the land who were dispossessed. And... uh, as I said, cast outside the course of history. We were denied. Our very existence was denied. For a long time, people thought we didn't exist as a nation, as a people. And, of course, we were victims of the myth of the land without a people for a people without a land. So many people are surprised when they hear that there are Palestinians and that we do go back centuries and that we are as to the earliest Christian tradition in the world. This is something that... uh, many people would like to ignore, because once you have that knowledge, then you question another narrative, which dismissed our existence, and therefore justified whatever happened to us. Because if we were not dismissed, our narrative was confiscated or maligned or distorted to justify again what you do to your victims. So uh, our land certainly was not a land without a people, and we are a people with a culture, with an ancient history, and with a very deep-seated sense of Pride in our identity and existence. And uh, of course, we have constantly been cast outside the protection of the law, and Israel has been treated as a country above the law. The dual injustice that the Palestinians uh, underwent was one, the, the injustice of uh, expulsion, uprootedness. Uh, dispossession, exile. We have the largest refugee population in the world, but since 1967 we also have had the ongoing injustice of the oppression of the occupation, an occupation which you all know deprives you of your most basic freedoms and rights. And uh, certainly I call it uh, uh, an occupation that is a collective enslavement of a people because one state has total and full authority over a whole captive population. So ours has been historically a struggle for affirmation, historical redemption, and of course, historical vindication. Our identity, one that requires not validation in this sense, but recognition, the recognition of the integrity and cultural authenticity of the Palestinian people and rights, and we've been engaged in a quest for recognition and affirmation in all aspects. That's why when people, it's not, People might find it not very dramatic when we claim that Israeli claims to tabbouleh and hummus and baba ghanoush and so on are very painful to us uh, because they're part of a grand identity theft, that these are our foods, uh, including our embroidery. Uh, But there's also now uh, an identity theft that's taking place, an ongoing identity theft, the transformation of the names of the Palestinian towns and cities and so on, and what Ilan Papi calls the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, the displacement-replacement paradigm. Uh, You displace the people, you replace the people. But in so doing, there's also been cultural confiscation. Uh, Lately, many of our cultural and historical sites, uh, including mosques and the old... uh, uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem and so on, the, the Masjid Rabah and uh, Bin Bilal in Bethlehem and uh, uh, in Hebron, the Ibrahim Mosque, they, they were declared Israeli uh, historical sites and so on. So this kind of creeping annexation and confiscation does not just extend to the narrative and the history, but also to the land, to the people, to the names, uh, to the culture, to the identity. And it is something that we certainly feel has to be counted. There's also an asymmetry of power between occupied and occupied. There is no parity. And, and, you know, assuming a sense of false symmetry that this is just a conflict between two peoples who are equal is not true because this is a situation of occupation where you have one occupying power, a military occupation, and uh, an occupied population. And, There is a power imbalance there that is quite blatant. Besides, we don't have an ally of enormous power like the U.S., the way Israel does. Uh, Again, we've been subject to stereotypes, labels, uh, attempts at dehumanization, and so on. However, I do not think that uh, the the, uh, public discourse domain remains captive to only one narrative, to the Israeli narrative, anymore. This used to be the case, but now... There are attempts here in universities, in different civil society institutions, uh, uh, people of conscience, uh, solidarity movements, to uh, pick up the message and to speak out and to challenge the prevailing distortions and, and versions of reality that have very little to do with Palestinian reality. And finally, I believe that the Palestinian question is not a bilateral, uh, question given this asymmetry of power and cannot be resolved bilaterally because then power is used or abused in order to, to the disadvantage of the uh, weaker side. Uh, I don't believe it's unilateral, even though recently that term was uh, quite common, especially with the uh, Bush War on terrorism, everything became unilateral, unilateral. And this is an Israeli way again of deciding single handedly on the ground and preempting the outcome of talks, it is actually a multilateral and a collective responsibility. As I said earlier, it's a real test for the international community, for its collective will, for the responsibility of power, and also for the global rule of law to provide accountability for Israel, protection for the Palestinians, and of course the basic foundations of a just peace, whereby both peoples will feel that they are not doomed to this perpetual lethal relationship that is uh, detrimental to both sides. It is the key to regional stability and development within the Arab world and elsewhere. And of course it is the most emotive cause in the Arab world and the Islamic world. It shapes uh, attitudes and perceptions and quite often policies. And uh, of course it has been used and abused many times by people who want to justify Uh, their own actions, extremism, violence, and so on. So we must not leave the Palestinian question up for grabs for people who are trying to borrow our constituency or our integrity. It is really a question of justice and has its own integrity. Now, currently, the Palestinians feel that the process that began in 47-48 is finding expression and continuity in the ongoing measures of the occupation the displacement-replacement paradigm. There's a sense of a state of collective trauma and vulnerability, an ongoing multifaceted aggression, a negation of rights and freedoms, but also concretely on the ground, this unilateralism, this lethal unilateralism of land theft, settlement activities, annexation, and ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem, and I can talk about this open my daughter's ID was confiscated as a Jerusalemite because they just decided arbitrarily that the center of her life is no longer Jerusalem. So this is ongoing. She's part of the almost 5,000 people whose IDs were confiscated in in 2008, and this is ongoing now. And of course, the, the tragic house demolitions of people and expulsions from their own home in Jerusalem. This has been ongoing lately. If they've decided that, or if they see, or if they uh, have any idea that uh, a house or a building or whatever that existed before was inhabited or owned by any Jew, then automatically they kick out the Palestinians who were there and they claim back the, the house, as they say. Well, if you use that logic, then of course the Palestinians can claim back close to 75, 78% of all the land and property in Israel because it belonged to us. So how can you say that you have the right to claim a few houses that may have been inhabited or may have been owned by Jews in 1930 or 1890 or whatever and then you deny the Palestinians all their property, private, collective, church property, mosque, uh, trust uh, property, and so on. Uh, this is a, a very um, dangerous logic to to adopt, because once you start that, then it, it applies to both. Then the Palestinians can claim back their own property. You still have the land deeds and the, the keys to our homes. Anyway, but uh, as I said, this is ongoing. Jerusalem is, is encircled in a variety of ways. It is besieged. Um, by a wall, it is, and and you know the the horrendous wall by uh, uh, the uh, settlements around Jerusalem and of course by military checkpoints and gates and so on. Those of you who have been to Palestine know how difficult it is, if not impossible, to get to Jerusalem. And if you happen to be a Palestinian who doesn't have a Jerusalem ID, you cannot go to Jerusalem unless you get a permit. And these permits are very difficult to get, if not impossible, and very rare indeed. And, of course, this wall of separation, the apartheid wall, we call it a wall of separation and annexation, snaking through the West Bank, separating Palestinian from Palestinian. It is not built on Israeli land, as you know. It is built on Palestinian land. It doesn't separate Palestinian-Israeli. It separates Palestinian from Palestinian. And at the same time, it imprisons the Palestinians inside this wall. It steals our horizon. I've always said this nothing, very little that you can do that's much worse than stealing other people's horizons. If you cannot look beyond a wall all your life and a wall that is so ugly and so uh, unjust, so blatantly unjust, then you certainly are creating a situation of collective victimization, but not just for the Palestinians. I believe it also imprisons the Israelis behind that wall and it shields them from knowing what actually is happening to the Palestinians and from the consequences of their own government's actions. This kind of imposed ignorance is also very serious because then you do not take action. Before, there used to be more solidarity movements from Israel. There are, of course, and I would like to mention, there are Israelis who stand up, who speak out, who challenge um, people who are, people like uh, Rabbis for Human Rights, people like uh, Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, people uh, like, Uh, the the, uh, women in black and the Israeli women's movement that has been very active, but at the same time this forced separation of the two people where you see only the worst and you prepare for further conflict again uh, undermines the potential for a real agreement. There are many Israelis like internationals who demonstrate regularly against the wall and this kind of uh, protest movement has become really quite effective and uh, not just a statement, but also a symbol of this universal solidarity and willingness to stand up to injustice and oppression, and we salute it, certainly. And of course, Israel continues to act as such with immunity and impunity. We do have one of the most hardline extremist governments in Israel, and uh, before that, of course, the war on Gaza is an expression of how far people can go in targeting a captive innocent population. And when, uh, uh, I don't want to give you all the statistics, I'm sure you know, we have over 1,440 people killed, over 5,400 injured, uh, 108 women, 417 children, 22,000 buildings destroyed. Gaza continues to be, uh, of course, under siege, a siege of starvation. And uh, many of the national institutions have been demolished or bombed to smithereens, including universities and mosques and public institutions, uh, including the Legislative Council building and so on. I don't see how guilty they were. The use of of, uh, internationally prohibited uh, weapons like white phosphorus bombs and so on. You've heard all these things. It's been very dramatic, very tragic. The problem is when Uh, Justice Richard Goldstone wrote his report about Gaza. Instead of attempting to look into that report and see where Israel has really gone wrong and to uh, carry out a process of self-examination and criticism, they attacked Justice Richard Goldstone, who's a man of tremendous integrity, the man of serious courage. I've known him for many, many years. He was working in South Africa, and he was part of the Truth and Reconciliation. He was also head of the... the, um, I'm sure you should have him here, he's remarkable. <laughs> but, uh, head of many tribunals. But he was really maligned, and personally maligned, and attacked, and they attempted to discredit him, and so on. But again, the, the typical case of avoiding any kind of accountability and of attacking the messenger and the person who dare speak out, speak truth to power, as you know. Um, again, the, the pursuit of the systematic deconstruction and dismantlement of Palestine, uh, which is happening before our very eyes, including, as I said, the cultural uh, expropriation. Now, in in, uh, 1991, when we entered the peace process, and I was personally involved in dialogue and negotiations and so on, way back in the 70s, when it wasn't even fashionable or popular to do that, but we were trying to forge a common language to see how we could resolve this uh, this issue. We've always had a very clear objective and no hidden agenda. We talked about the devolution of occupation and the evolution of statehood as two parallel processes: peacemaking and nation building. These two have to proceed side by side, simultaneously. They are interdependent. You do need to build the Palestinian state, and you do need to remove the occupation. Uh, per se. Now, this has been a valid uh, objective throughout. We do not have uh, any hidden agenda, as I said, or irredentism, but instead we ended up seeing on the ground the reversal. We have the devolution of statehood and the evolution of occupation. The occupation has reinvented itself in many ways as a system of power and control under the guise of security. and. Uh, has attempted to deconstruct Palestinian realities, to transform us into population centers that are totally separate, especially through the system of military checkpoints and a total curtailment of freedom of movement of people and goods. So you ended up with a deconstruction, with a devolution of statehood and evolution of the occupation, whereby they feel they can do anything. They have all the power, but none of the responsibilities of the occupied as per the fourth Geneva Convention. Uh, And instead of recognizing the the magnitude of the Palestinian compromise of accepting 22% of historical Palestine, which was occupied in 1967, Uh, which is the West Bank, including Jerusalem and Gaza, as the land for the Palestinian state, they're trying to say, okay, now what's mine is mine, let's see how much I can take of what's yours. We're saying this is a historical compromise that has to be recognized that wasn't done easily. uh, It was very painful and very painstaking uh, to be able to achieve this compromise. And... uh, Now that, ironically, there's a global consensus that the two-state solution is the only workable solution. It may not be absolutely just, but it is relatively just, uh, to accept the 67 lines and to establish the Palestinian state side-by-side alongside Israel. Israel is doing everything possible to undermine and destroy that solution Mm -hmm. through blurring the divide by building more settlements, confiscating more land, and so on. And as a result, since we've been engaged in in all these uh, negotiations without any concrete results, we are in danger of losing the constituency for peace if they see negotiations proceeding without any impact on the ground. Now, we can say that uh, I belong to an endangered species, (laughs) a minority that still believes that a two-state solution can be had if we act rapidly, decisively, and with a sense of real urgency and responsibility. It is disappearing. There are many Palestinians now who are saying the only option left is the de facto one-state solution. Even the term binational is not really accurate because that presupposes a sense of equality and symmetry, but a a state that, in a sense, is a real apartheid state where you have gradually... uh, a minority, an ethnic, religious minority perhaps, uh, uh, running uh, the lives and rights of a majority. But this is what Israel has to decide for itself. It's not for me. And as I said, I don't describe it as an ethnic or as a, a demographic issue. I still see it as a human, moral, political, legal issue and has to be resolved accordingly. But in order to get there, we have to adopt a triple-tiered approach rapidly. We have to curb all these violations we talked about, all these prejudicial unilateral measures on the ground, particularly as related to the core issues of negotiations, Jerusalem, refugees, settlements, boundaries, water rights, security. All these things are part of a package. And Israel cannot predetermine these issues before any type of negotiations or agreements. And, uh, of course... All settlement activities must stop. All decisions, including the latest decisions, we can talk about what uh, happened with the US uh, uh, envoys uh, in a little while. These must cease, and Israel must be held accountable. Two, the nation-building process in Palestine must be supported and empowered, of course Salam Fayyad's plan of the embodiment of uh, the state on the ground is a positive, proactive approach, but it still needs institution building and development needs a political framework. And we do need to ensure that we are building a democracy that is based on the rule of law and respect for human rights and freedoms for all Palestinians, and not in accordance with the neocon agenda of exporting the democratic revolution again we have, uh, we call on the world to respect the outcome of elections. You cannot ask for a, a democracy provided the Palestinians guarantee the outcome, huh? or you elect the people you will like. It is unfortunate sometimes people uh, are elected whom others don't like, but you have to respect the results. You cannot decide to boycott. Here we were under occupation, and we were, subject, we were subjected to sanctions and boycott because the Palestinians elected Hamas for a variety of reasons, including abuse of power and so on by, by Fatah and the national authority, and including the lack of progress in the peace process, and a variety of things, but still, Instead of punishing the occupier, for decades we've been saying, you know, hold Israel accountable, carry out any type of sanctions, and they said, no, don't even dream of it. But when it came to the Palestinians, just for electing the wrong party, quote-unquote, we ended up being under sanctions while we were already under occupation. So that added not just insult to injury, but great hardships and, and tremendous deprivations. Anyway, and it really undermined what we were trying to build as an active, vibrant, uh, multi-party, pluralistic democracy that is inclusive, that is tolerant. You, uh, we have to help now heal the rift the the and try to achieve national unity. We believe Hamas is part of a pluralistic democratic system. Sadly, not a substitute, but part of a democratic system. and. In one way, I have my right to oppose their social agenda as well because uh, we want to have an enlightened social and cultural agenda that is, as I said, tolerant and uh, uh, inclusive. And we need to work out our reform agenda and uh, uh, institutionalize a whole system of good governance by law and practice as well. The third is the rapid and effective engagement for a just peace. The problem is that we've had a peace process with no relationship to reality, an abstract process taking place. People talking, losing its substance, its credibility, and losing any relationship to reality, because this process gave Israel, the occupier, the time and space and license in many ways to carry out whatever it wanted on the ground without any kind of intervention or positive engagement to uh, protect the outcome of, uh, of the talks. So we don't need a process for its own sake. We don't need to buy time for Israel. And certainly we don't need to reinvent the wheel. People know what the outcome should be uh, like. We've negotiated, heaven knows, for decades. It's enough negotiations. They've become an objective on their own. Every time people say, but you should negotiate, I said, that's what we've been doing. And under negotiations, we've lost Land, lives, resources, water, people, freedoms, everything. The wall was built while we were negotiating. The siege took place while we were negotiating. The shelling and bombing of Gaza took place. The same thing, the incursions in the West Bank, and so on. So what we need to do is ensure that this time we do have a clear, decisive, not negotiating process, but agreements to be implemented based on uh, international law, UN resolutions with clear terms of reference and objectives, with a clear end game, a binding time frame. As I said, there's a sense of urgency. We need to uh, address the core issues, not the side issues, and no transitional measures. I'll be done very quickly. I'll wrap up. <laughs> I warned him, he's been forewarned. I said, You'd better not be subtle. Tell me, time is over, and I'll stop. We don't need the phased approach or transitional approaches uh, in any way. We don't need this invention of a state with transitional borders or provisional borders. We need a real state with sovereignty. And of course we need to activate the quartet, change reality on the ground and change the lethal dynamic on the ground. We're willing to accept international troops and peacekeepers. We need monitoring and verifying mechanisms, concrete steps to bring about Israeli withdrawal and the recognition of the 1967 boundaries with Jerusalem as the capital, as per either the European initiative and of course the Arab peace initiative. And we have to think before, we have to think outside the box and we have to act before it's too late. There may still be an opportunity. Uh, Peace in Palestine is still possible. It is something that can be had. It is a very noble endeavor regardless of the very difficult path ahead. Thank Thank you very much.
0: Several questions about the Obama administration. Has uh, President Obama and his perspective on peace in the Middle East changed anything substantively about what you do and hope for in the Palestinian-Israeli peace process? And further, if you had Obama's ear tomorrow, Mm. what would you say to him?
1: I'll try to see him if I can soon. But I will tell you, I'm glad you asked this question because I had the whole section that I had to omit because I... (laughs) So now I'm going to do that. Look, for the last eight years, the pre-Obama period was really a tragic situation for the Palestinians and the world because it was characterized by the so-called war on terrorism. The strategic doctrine of preemptive strikes, the neocon ideology with the extreme Christian right, and so on and so on, we ended up with a political vacuum in Palestine, in the Middle East, that was filled by military action and by extremism and violence. And of course, the U.S. became part of the military with the war in in, uh, Iraq and so on. And uh, that vacuum, that lack of engagement, that lack of responsibility in in terms of uh, the American role, and the fact that Israel was a domestic issue in the US, all had a very adverse effect on peacemaking and the peace process. We saw the sort of regression, uh, the sliding into the slippery slope of greater violence, greater distrust. In 2002, we were under occupation. We were being shelled and bombed. We found ourselves without streets, without electricity, without roads. I was in my house for 40-some days under curfew, where you couldn't leave at all, and the roads around me disappeared, and the tanks took over, and we were shelled from... Anyway, so that was before. When Obama took over, he articulated a message that was different. I'm sure you've heard this collective sigh of relief from the Middle East and the Arab world and the Islamic world, that finally there's somebody who's reaching out. Uh, the Americans are saying we want to prioritize peacemaking rather than a war on terrorism as a military adventure. Uh, the, the Cairo speech of, uh, on June 5th of um, President Obama was very promising, and we felt You have somebody who wants to engage immediately from the beginning with concrete steps. He appointed George Mitchell, he moved ahead. We were extremely encouraged. People called us naive, but we felt maybe now, with multilateralism, with international law, with human rights, this uh, administration's agenda coincides with our own. Uh, What happened was, when he appointed George Mitchell, he came to uh, Palestine, Israel, and the Israelis said, no thanks. George Mitchell said, and Obama said, stop all settlement activities, including Jerusalem. The Israelis said, no, Jerusalem is ours, and we're not stopping settlements. A whole year was wasted, where the Israelis continued to build settlements, continued to annex the land, and continued to thumb their nose at the, at the American administration, and they said nothing. I said, in that case, I mean, I would stand up and say the Israelis are refusing to cooperate. Now, they're trying, to uh, start a new, what we call, uh, not peace process, but negotiations or talks, called proximity talks. In the 1980s, we used to have proximity talks with the mediation of the Dutch, because they invented those talks. They brought in the PLO and uh, Israeli uh, members of of a delegation and put them in the same hotel in The Hague, I think, not Amsterdam. And the, the Dutch foreign minister went between them, back and forth. Uh, because at that time Israel did not recognize the PLO and they wanted to get some kind of dialogue going. Now, we're way beyond proximity talks in terms of political talks, but in terms of reality on the ground, no, we're way behind. So the problem is that the Israelis have, have refused to comply. They said, okay, we will build settlements in and around Jerusalem. We will build infrastructure for the settlements. We will continue to build public institutions in the settlements and we will continue to build in uh, uh, the the contracts that are already given out to the private sector and we will call this a settlement freeze. Now anybody in his or her right right mind knows that this is not a settlement freeze and actually it would result in greater uh, settlements than before, than without the freeze. So. I mean, we, we wanted seriousness of intent and real commitment. Then the Israelis said, we want to control, we want to leave the military in, in uh, the Jordan Valley. Hmm? So, And when Biden, when Joe Biden came to <laughs> Israel and the West Bank to start to launch the proximity talks, which is a very, very minuscule achievement, the Israelis announced that they're building 1,600 units, settlement units, in Jerusalem. in in a settlement near Jerusalem. So that was a great slap in the face. Before that, when Mitchell was there, they announced 112, but I guess the higher you are, the more settlements they were building. And then, to add insult to injury, there were attacks on the uh, uh, American administration by saying that, some pro-Israeli groups started talking about Obama as a one-time president. Instead of defending the Israeli position, as they see it, they started attacking the American administration, which also backfired. And then with the AIPAC convention, um, Netanyahu came to Washington and right from Washington he told them that Jerusalem is ours, we continue to build in Jerusalem and so on, in a sense bringing the message home uh, to the administration. Then there were all these ads in the papers. Elie Wiesel, I know he was here, but uh, I don't know how he got the Nobel Prize, but anyway. He, he and, and Ron Lauder and these guys put these ads in the paper that Jerusalem was mentioned, what, 600 times or whatever in the, the Bible. Somebody said it wasn't. Uh, and, and it wasn't mentioned in the Quran or something like that. And he wants to transform this into a religious conflict again. And people are interfering in negative ways. Then they started this action with signing, agreements, signing statements in the uh, Congress, both houses of Congress, uh, against Obama's intervention in the Middle East. Don't put pressure on Israel, they said. Israel is our ally. Now, they're not doing Israel any favors, and they're not doing the US any favours because the US has been paying a price in its standing, in its credibility, in its interests throughout the region because of Israeli actions and because of lack of accountability for Israel. So now (laughs) now that you've asked me about the Obama administration, now they've said that they are going to move rapidly in the sense that they understand that this requires decisive action with a sense of urgency. Uh, the cessation of settlement activities is an implicit thing. I'm not going to say this officially, this is unofficial. That there will be no settlements in a building in and around Jerusalem. That uh, the U.S. will declare openly if either party is engaged in any acts of provocation. Uh, now settlements are blatant acts of provocation of course. And uh, uh, there, there is talk of some sort of lifting of the cover because the, the US always used the veto to protect Israel and the Security Council from any kind of accountability. There's also talk that there may be thinking of an international summit that will address this issue. All these things are working together to see whether we can resume some sort of drive that is decisive and rapid and substantive very quickly to bring about an end to the tragic situation.
0: Thank you. Many in this country view uh, the settlement building on the Israeli side as roughly akin to the act of provocation, provocation from the Palestinian side of violence, random violence perpetrated against Israelis. Uh, you haven't said much about that other than uh, referring to it as so-called security issue. Could you address the, the matter of Palestinian violence uh, directed against Israel, especially against Israeli citizens, mm-hmm. suicide bombings, rockets, etc.?
1: Yeah. Yeah, whenever I present the Palestinian perspective, I'm always asked why I don't present with it the Israeli perspective. Nobody asks the Israelis why don't they present the Palestinians. But anyway, no, this is true. We we have been engaged in in uh, a mea culpa and in an expression of guilt and so on. Whenever we do anything wrong, we say it. it there's nothing to hide. The problem is we're not occupying Israel; uh, they're occupying us. So when people say, "Well, what do you have to offer in return?" I say, "If they." Remove their settlement, we will remove a settlement. If they withdraw, we will withdraw. But we don't have the same power that they have. They release prisoners, we will release prisoners. Now, Palestinian violence. The the issue of Palestinian violence has been addressed in abstraction, as though there was no provocation, as though there was no reality of occupation. The occupation is a pervasive system of military violence. And when you live in a violent situation like this all your life, you have to be really a saint. I'm not saying we're all saints, but you have to exercise extreme self-control not to resort to violence, not to do unto others what was done unto you. And there were people who did resort to violence. There were people who think that armed struggle is legitimate. There were many of us who said no, even though it may be legitimate, but we do not resort to violence. You do not adopt the means and the methods of your enemy. If they do use violence against you, it doesn't mean, if they do kill your women and children, it doesn't mean you have to kill theirs. And you have to maintain, particularly as the weaker party, as people who are under occupation, we are being held by more stringent standards, like women. We're generally expected to be much better behaved than our oppressors. And we have to, we're under a test always of of credibility and so on. So we. Claimed the moral high ground in the earlier Intifada, we didn't have violence. But there was an, an uh, ideological shift, and there were people, particularly Hamas, that resorted to violence and, in a tragic way, violence against civilians in Israel. This is not acceptable. We had lots of voices, many, the majority, who stood up against violence against civilians in Israel. And the most persuasive effect. Uh, of this is the fact that Hamas has stopped it because it realized that the Palestinian people, more than anybody else, will not condone this and will not accept it, and they started losing support as a result of this. So the Palestinian violence is a reaction to an abnormal situation, but that doesn't justify it. When people say, well, we're dying anyway, might as well take a few with us, or we don't have airplanes to bomb them, so we'll turn our bodies. And... This was an, an argument that took place earlier, but it has stopped. Now, that I mean, we are people under occupation and we are being held responsible for the safety of our military occupiers. But I'd like to ask Israel about our safety as civilians who are subject to the most systematic and military, militarily sophisticated weapon system in, in the region. It's the strongest army in the region, the fourth strongest army in the world, for heaven's sake. And then you're asking their victims, to lie down and die quietly i'm in favor i'm in favor of popular nonviolent resistance we've been engaged in this and this is how you expose the limits of violence the limits of even the strongest army because they cannot defeat the will of an unarmed people
0: We have a very short time left, if you would respond to the question of your hope. Do you have serious, uh, realistic hope for peace in Palestine and Israel? And if so, why?
1: Yeah, I do have hope. (laughs) Some people call that naive. But desperate people commit desperate acts. And when you lose hope and when you lose faith, I would say faith in the people, in the human spirit, in the human will, and the transformational power of people who are committed to, to human rights and to justice and to peace. As I said, that's a noble endeavor. If you lose hope, if you lose faith in all these things, then you give yourself license to do the opposite. And I believe we've been on the receiving end of, of the most destructive forces, that we really have, the only way to counter them is by mustering all the constructive, positive forces that we have of this human spirit and will. That's why I have faith in, in people in the Palestinian people and people like you and people of good conscience and all the solidarity movement throughout the world and the fact that maybe governments are not always governed by what's best for everybody but what's best for individuals, power politics and so on. But I still believe that maybe eventually, but it is taking time, but hopefully sooner rather than later, there will be a shift, there will be a decisive position that peace is in everybody's interest. It is, as I started out by saying, it's not a gift, a condescending gift to the Palestinians. It is in everybody's interest. Palestinians, Israelis, Arabs, Christians, Muslims, Jews, it's a, a global need. If we are going to begin to show that there is a global human will to hold international law Uh, to, uh, to, to adhere to international law, to hold people who violate it accountable, to implement international humanitarian law, including the Fourth Geneva Convention, and to say that it is time that the Palestinians are treated as a people equal to all other peoples with the protection of the law and that Israelis are held accountable like all other states in the world by the same standards and laws. And only then will you send a message to the rest of the world that those who are unjustly treated, that the victims do have hope, and that the oppressors can be held accountable. Thank you. Thank you.